Hello and welcome to the March 17th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. I'll start with several of our most recent articles on the novel coronavirus that is currently wreaking havoc across the globe. Since SARS-CoV-2 was identified in China in December 2019, the world is wrestling with how to control this novel coronavirus with limited data about its epidemiology, including the incubation period, which has important implications for surveillance and control activities. The authors of an article published online on March 10th estimate the length of the incubation period and describe its public health implications. To arrive at these estimates, the researchers called news reports and press releases from 38 provinces, regions, and countries outside of Hubei province, China, to gather data on publicly reported COVID-19 cases between January 4th and 24th, 2020. They identified 101 confirmed cases with identifiable exposure windows and known dates of symptom onset to estimate the incubation period. Their estimates are that the median incubation period is 5.2 days with a 95% confidence interval of 4.4 to 6 days, and 97.5% of those who develop symptoms will do so within 10 and a half days of infection. These estimates imply that under conservative assumptions, 64 out of every 10,000 cases will develop symptoms after 14 days of active monitoring or quarantine. These findings support current proposals for the length of quarantine or active monitoring of those potentially exposed to SARS-CoV-2, though in some cases, longer monitoring periods might be justified. Of course, estimates will need to be updated as additional data become available. Another article published online first estimates that Iran may have significantly more cases of COVID-19 than the 43 that have been publicly reported. At the time of publication, 28 countries had confirmed cases of COVID-19 since the epidemic began in late 2019. Between February 19th and 23rd, 2020, Iran reported its first 43 cases with eight deaths and three cases originating from Iran were identified in other countries. According to experts, this is concerning because a large epidemic in Iran could further fuel global dissemination of COVID-19. Researchers from the University of Toronto used data from the International Air Transport Association to quantify a more accurate COVID-19 outbreak size in Iran and anticipate where infections originating in Iran may spread next. They assessed flights between Iran and other countries using direct and total traveler volumes and final destination cities of travelers originating in Iran during the month of February. As of February 23rd, COVID-19 cases that originated in Iran had spread to Canada, Lebanon, and the United Arab Emirates. Given the low volume of air travel between Iran and these countries, the researchers estimated that 18,300 COVID-19 cases would have had to occur in Iran, assuming an outbreak duration of 1.5 months in the country. The authors note that the lack of identified COVID-19 cases in countries with far closer travel ties to Iran, such as Iraq, Syria, and Azerbaijan, suggests that cases in these countries are being missed, rather than being truly absent. They warn that public health initiatives in this region are urgently needed. The next coronavirus article is a commentary that argues that the best way to protect our hospitals against COVID-19 is to bolster our approach to routine respiratory viruses 
such as influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, parainfluenza, adenovirus, human metanumovirus, and conventional coronaviruses. The authors explain how doing so will simultaneously improve care for current patients, make work safer for clinicians, and help prevent the incursion of occult COVID-19 into hospitals. Respiratory viruses infect literally millions each year and cause tens of thousands of deaths in the United States alone. They can cause severe pneumonia unto themselves, predispose patients to bacterial superinfection, and exacerbate cardiac and pulmonary conditions. Yet many hospitals manage respiratory viruses passively, rely on posted signs alone to deter visitors with upper respiratory tract infections from visiting. We only isolate patients in private rooms if they test positive for influenza, even though many other viruses can cause equally morbid influenza-like syndromes. We take patients with acute respiratory tract symptoms off precautions if they take negative for viruses, even though viral tests have variable and imperfect sensitivity. We consider masks alone to be adequate protection, even though viruses can be transmitted via fomites and eye contact as well as mouth and nose contact. And we tolerate healthcare workers coming to work with upper respiratory tract infections the author believes that this half-hearted approach towards endemic respiratory viruses is a source of harm to our patients and puts us at increased risk of COVID-19 infiltration. And the last recent coronavirus article I'll mention is another commentary. The authors note that the best case scenario estimates suggest that COVID-19 will surely stress bed capacity, equipment, and healthcare personnel in U.S. hospitals in ways not previously experienced. They offer advice for hospitals and health systems on how to prepare to care for a potentially large influx of patients with COVID-19. In addition to these articles, there's a special episode of the Annals on Call podcast in which Dr. Center discusses the epidemiology of the novel coronavirus with Dr. David Fisman of the University of Toronto. The podcast and all of these most recent articles and a collection of others related to coronavirus are publicly available at www.annals.org. There is also a link to the American College of Physicians Coronavirus Resource Hub. Moving to articles on other topics. Currently, the best available strategy to prevent influenza is annual vaccination with inactivated or attenuated influenza virus. However, the short time between publication of WHO recommendations on the strains to include in the annual vaccine and the start of the influenza season, coupled with the lengthy manufacturing process, means that the availability of doses of vaccine is limited. In addition, the effectiveness of the vaccine is imperfect since influenza strains may mutate. Flu-V is a synthetic vaccine allowing all-year-round manufacturing and designed to provide cross-protection against both influenza A and B for broad patient populations. Annals published an article that describes a study in which researchers randomly assigned 175 healthy adults to either an injection of adjuvanted or non-adjuvanted Flu-V or adjuvanted or non-adjuvanted placebo to compare the safety, immune response, and exploratory efficacy of different formulations and dosing regimens. They found that a single dose of adjuvanted flu-V elicited a greater immune response compared to placebo. Adverse events were mostly mild to moderate injection site reactions. The authors conclude that a phase three trial is warranted to explore efficacy of this vaccine in preventing influenza and related complications. 
Patients with atrial fibrillation are often prescribed anticoagulants to prevent blood clots or stroke. Apixaban and rivaroxaban are newer blood thinners that are being recommended over warfarin because of their improved safety and ease of administration that does not require blood tests to monitor and guide dose adjustments. Although trials have individually compared apixaban and rivaxaban with warfarin in patients with atrial fibrillation, few studies have compared the two treatments with each other. Researchers from Brigham Women's Hospital and Sinai Health studied a nationwide U.S. commercial insurance claims database to compare the safety and effectiveness of apixaban versus rivaroxaban for patients newly prescribed one of the blood thinners for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Two closely matched treatment groups included 39,351 patients who prescribed apixaban and 39,351 prescribed rivaroxaban. At 290 days of follow-up, the rivaroxaban group had a higher rate of stroke or systemic blood clots than the apixaban group, and the apixaban group had a lower rate of gastrointestinal bleeding or bleeding in the brain than the rivaroxaban group. According to the authors, the results should help inform decision-making when discussing treatment options with patients who have atrial fibrillation. Next is a case report of a 63-year-old woman who had several weeks of increasing pain, redness, and loss of vision in her right eye that did not resolve with steroid treatment. The patient had a history of Hashimoto thyroiditis and Meniere's disease and had been taking an oral statin for hypercholesterolemia, but started alirikumab treatment about six weeks before the eye symptoms began. Suspecting a rare reaction to the alirikumab, the clinicians discontinued the medication and treated the patient's thyroiditis with uveal infusion with prednisone. Within one week, the patient reported dramatic improvement in her ocular and systemic symptoms. By two months, all of her symptoms and findings had completely resolved. Alirikumab treatment was not resumed. The authors of the next article believe that a newly approved drug for HIV, pre-exposure, prophylaxis, or PrEP may undermine efforts to expand access to HIV prevention for the nation's most vulnerable populations. PrEP, a pill taken once a day, reduces the risk of HIV infection via sex or injection drug use by up to 99%. Since 2012, there has been one FDA-approved PrEP formulation, the combination of tenofovir and emtricitabine. The availability of a less expensive generic formulation later this year is highly anticipated, as it may help to expand access to PrEP for some of the most difficult-to-reach segments of the at-risk population. Enthusiasm is tempered, however, by the introduction of a pricey new branded formulation, emtricitabine tenofovir alafenamide, which was recently approved for PrEP in men who have sex with men. Determining the cost-effectiveness of the new versus the generic drug is important for clinical decision-making and policymakers. Researchers reviewed published research and data obtained from recently completed clinical trials to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of the two agents for PrEP and to identify the highest possible premium that the newly approved drug could reasonably command, even under the very best of circumstances, over the older, soon-to-be generic drug. The authors intentionally overstated the adverse clinical and economic consequences of the generic drug, inflating rates of bone and kidney disease incidents, assuming that all fractures would require surgical repair, and that all cases of kidney disease would require dialysis and be irreversible. 
They found that even when they positioned the new drug on the most favorable light possible, there was no plausible scenario under which it would be cost-effective compared to generic. On March 17th, we published a systematic review and meta-analysis that concluded that the use of dual therapy with direct oral anticoagulant plus P2Y12 inhibitor was associated with reduced risk for major bleeding compared to triple therapy with a vitamin K antagonist plus aspirin and P2Y12 inhibitor for patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation after percutaneous coronary intervention. Patients with ischemic heart disease and atrial fibrillation undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention create a clinical conundrum. It is not clear which antithrombotic regimen is most appropriate for preventing major adverse cardiovascular events in such patients. Evidence has favored the direct oral anticoagulants over vitamin K antagonists when antiplatelet therapy is also needed following percutaneous coronary intervention. Recent trials have studied an alternative approach, dual therapy consisting of dual oral anticoagulant and a P2Y12 inhibitor versus triple therapy consisting of vitamin K antagonist and dual antiplatelet therapy. Theoretically, the cardiovascular benefits gained by using triple therapy could be offset by a higher risk for bleeding, whereas withdrawal of aspirin might lead to higher rates of stent thrombosis and ischemic events with dual therapy. This systematic review provides evidence that can assist decision-making when physicians encounter patients who present with this conundrum. Currently, only one cannabidiol-derived drug has received approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and that drug is approved to treat a rare form of epilepsy. Regardless, companies continue to market and sell cannabidiol-derived products, claiming that they prevent, cure, or treat various conditions. Given the growing number of companies invested in cannabidiol commercial success, along with previous evidence demonstrating associations between authors' conflicts of interest and pro-industry conclusions, it is necessary to evaluate what research is being done on cannabidiol-derived products and the industry's potential role in disseminating evidence to patients and physicians through the published literature. Researchers identified 417 articles published between 2014 and 2019 that discussed the characteristics, use, or therapeutic effect of a cannabidiol-derived therapy. Of these, 99 were human studies and 318 were animal studies, basic science studies, non-systematic reviews, editorials, or commentaries. Among all 417 articles, approximately one-fifth disclosed any industry-related funding, and half of them received support from the same company. Of the 99 human studies, more than 60% of them were authored by individuals with conflicts of interest. Sporadic non-familial pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma is a devastating cancer with a dismal five-year overall survival rate in the U.S., in people without family history of pancreatic cancer, the lifetime risk of developing pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma is about 1.6%. In 2019, an estimated 56,770 people were diagnosed with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma in the U.S., and over 45,000 will have died of the disease, making it the third leading cause of cancer death. By the time symptoms develop and diagnosis is made, 85% of these cancers are deemed unresectable. Yet among the top most deadly cancers, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma is the only cancer without an early detection strategy. 
Recently, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended against routine screening for this cancer in asymptomatic adults. The authors of a commentary published on March 17th proposed a model for identifying high-risk groups in whom early detection strategies might make sense. And the final March 17th online first article I'll highlight is an understanding clinical research article authored by Annal Statistical Editors. This article provides advice for physicians on how to critically appraise studies that use randomized trial data to compare non-randomized exposures. Most of the articles in the March 17th print issue were initially published online and highlighted in prior podcasts. New material in or accompanying the issue includes two on being a doctor essays, an Annals Consult Guys episode on palpitations and sleep apnea, and Annals on Call podcast that discusses how attention to history could have helped avoid the delay in recognizing ketoacidosis as a potential serious adverse event associated with SGLT2 inhibitors, and Annals for Hospitalist commentary on the history and disappearance of multi-bedded hospital wards. The March 17th issue also includes a poem titled Conference of Germs. This poem is worth reading at this time when we all confront a worldwide outbreak of a novel viral illness. That brings me to the end of this podcast. Please go to annals.org and read some of the articles I've highlighted. A reminder that all of Annals coronavirus content and the American College of Physicians Coronavirus Resource Hub are publicly available to all. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.